Well, the series that we are starting is called The Gift, and we're going to be going through these gifts that were given by the Magi um, to Jesus. And we're going to be looking for those deep symbolisms that are there. And, and I will tell you, it's been a while since I've had a week of study that showed me so many things I had not heard or known before. And so I do believe that God is going to be bringing just some deep meaning into our lives. And there's a few things that are just kind of uh, intellectually um, intriguing, but there's many other things that God is really continuing to reveal just some uh, changes in our lives and ways that he can work in our lives as we go into this Christmas season. We don't want to overlook the most important news that we ever hear. I know we think back to, you know, some of the biggest news that we've ever shared. And I think one of the most fun things is when you get that first opportunity that you find out you're expecting your first child and you get to go and have fun and share that news with other people. You know, it's, we want people to be excited when we have this fresh news to bring in. As we look at verse 1 again from Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, by the way, uh, Matthew chapter 2 is a great place to kind of open up and have it in front of you. Um, if you want to follow along, we've got the notes in the bulletin as well as on the church app. And there's information on the bulletin on how to get that. And you can follow along a few different ways. So as we look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So I want us to understand a little bit of who these wise men were. You know, so different translations say uh, wise men, some say magi. Um, the Greek word of mag magoi is actually the magi word that it comes from. Um, it's where we understand that these men traveled from a far off place and they came into the lands of Israel. In fact, verse 8 will let us know that our understanding of the Christmas story, and you've probably heard this before, can be challenged a little bit. You know, I know growing up, I loved in my church, they did the living Christmas trees. And uh, maybe you've seen one of those before. We had like these giant trees on both sides that people would go walk up and stand in and do these huge concerts. And I always loved the place where live camels would be walking through our sanctuary and the camels would kneel down and bow before the baby who was crying in the manger. You know, as we look at this text, it even tells us in verse 8 that Jesus was a young child when they brought him the gifts. The word would really imply that he was a toddler, maybe two, maybe even three. So at this point, we see the Magi are coming, that they've been trying to find this Messiah that was prophesied to be born. That yes, by the way, I'm not going to take the shepherds away from you. The shepherds did come the night that Jesus was born. That, that's still a part of our Christmas story, and that's absolutely fine. But I would say that most of us, we have magi or wise men in our nativity scene. And of course, how many wise men were there? There were three. Of course there was three. Why were there three? Well, there was three gifts, and so we're just assuming they each brought a gift to the party. And so we don't know exactly how many wise men there were. There obviously was probably more than one, um, but there could have been many. And these group of magi come because they wanted to find the one that was prophesied about. So as we see these three wise men come in, Scripture tells us when they saw the star in Matthew um, chapter 2, verse 10, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother. Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped Jesus. Then they opened their treasure chests and they gave him gifts of gold, 
frankincense, myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This week, we're going to talk about frankincense and the deep meaning that it has for us today in our relationship that we have with Jesus. Also, we're going to look next week at myrrh, and the third week, we're going to look at gold. Christmas Eve, we're actually doing a 3 p.m. service here on Christmas Eve, and we're just going to talk about the gift of Emmanuel, God with us. So as we go into this series to understand the gifts of the Magi, I want you to know a little bit of who these Magi are, who these wise men are. Um, Herodias was a 5th century B.C., so 500 years before the birth of Christ, Greek philosopher and historian. He said the Magi were a priestly caste of Medes from the Persian Empire. That the Magi were a small group, a priestly tribe within a larger group known as the Medes. It was very similar to what we see in Israel where you have the Levites that were born into a priestly tribe within the nation. They maintained influence, what's interesting, in several different empires. Uh, The Babylonians, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires all looked to this small group of people as wise men and magi that they would consult on decisions in regards to the future and also in reference to who really should be king. They were monotheistic. They typically would look to one God. They weren't something that looked at many different gods. Their primary element of worship, though, was circled around fire. Think of the Olympic flame and the internal fire. They kind of had that presence um, in their worship. They also had another altar where they also would sacrifice animals. One thing that was unique was that the Magi would be the ones responsible for eating the meat of all the sacrificial animals that were brought to, the, uh, to their altars. They had a system of clean and unclean animals. They were very meticulous about how they handled things that were considered dirty, such as people who had died. Once again, a lot of similarities to what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in um, the Judaism of the day. As we look at Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, we see something very unique and I believe significant. It said, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him in reference to the prophet Daniel. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. We actually see that Daniel from the Old Testament, yes, Daniel that was thrown in the lion's den, that Daniel was actually put in charge of the Magi because he was able to translate and understand the different dreams that he was put in charge of the Magi hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. It would have been much easier for the Magi to receive Daniel's system, the Jewish system, because it was very similar to their own. The Magi of Jesus' birth were called wise men because they were sought and consulted about the future They were sought and consulted about the stars. They understood things and were taught things that not many people understood. Here's where I think it becomes really interesting. No Persian king could become king unless he met two conditions. He had to master the spiritual disciplines of the Magi and be approved by them that they had done so. He also had to be approved and anointed 
with frankincense by the Magi in order to be considered the valid king of the lands. The Magi literally were the kingmakers of their day. And I think King Herod was very afraid of this. This whole idea that the Magi were coming and they were bringing frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And they were coming to the one that they said was going to be king of the Jews. It wasn't just a symbolic gesture that Herod was afraid of. Herod, who had been appointed by the Romans to be king over the lands of Judea and Israel. That he was truly afraid that if people heard that the Magi came and they brought frankincense and they declared that this young child was the rightful king of Israel, that others would have actually took up arms and said, no, this is the rightly appointed king of Israel. Herod wasn't just afraid of the symbolism. Herod was afraid that the actual act would have made Jesus in his birth the rightful king of the lands. In the 6th century BC, King Darius decided to make the, the, the religion of the Magi's, um, I don't know why I put these big words even in my messages sometimes, Zeroastrianism. There you go. The Magi conveniently converted. It was a mixed bag of what was happening in the New Testament, Old Testament, uh, in different lands. I believe the Magi that were there at the birth of Jesus, they were following the prophecies that Daniel had said, and they were coming specifically for the Messiah of the Old Testament. The reason why I say this, and I don't say that lightly, is because of Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, when it says, and we heard Lauren read this, they knelt down and they worshiped him. That Greek word for worship is only used in relationship with a Hebrew word in reference to the worship of the one true God of uh, the Jewish faith of Yahweh. There was other words they could have chosen to represent it, that they, they worshiped him as king. They worshiped him as you would if Caesar came in your presence. They worshiped him in honor as the king of the lands. But the word that was chosen in that text was the word for the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. They came because 500 some years ago, they had a prophet, Daniel, who was in their midst. And he taught them that the Messiah was coming. He told them the signs to look for. And they came expecting the Messiah to be there in that presence. And what interesting gifts they brought. When we have babies, we tend to get different gifts than these. If someone brought us, well, if someone brought me a hunk of gold for my son's birth, I definitely would not complain. But they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, things that were highly valuable. If you're taking notes, I think you can fill this in. The gifts were not only valuable, but they were incredibly practical and yet they were also deeply spiritual. They would have been easy to sell, easy to transport, easy to take with them as soon Herod would send his soldiers out to find all the young boys in the same age range of Jesus and bring their swords to kill them. And they flee to Egypt. Easy to transport, easy to sell. It also, each of the piece that we'll look at foreshadows the images of what Jesus would represent. A literary critic has said by James Montgomery Boyce, 
would draw special attention to the gifts, for they occur at the end of the story of Jesus' birth, after the child has been found, and thus occupy a place of prominence. From a literary perspective, if we look at the birth of Jesus, special attention is being drawn to these three gifts as they kind of end the story of Jesus' birth. And we, it kind of picks up later on as the um, Gospel of Luke continues. Gold, valuable in itself, represents the kingship of Jesus. Myrrh, which we're going to talk about next week, represented the suffering servant or the Lamb of God. Today, as we look at frankincense, we'll understand that frankincense has deep meaning for us. Now, I know we've got people, like I was talking with Ashley and, and Jenny about essential oils. How many people like to, you know, use essential oils? You know, and that's okay. You know, we've got essential oils in our house. In fact, I had the frankincense already in our house. So I dipped in there. What was so funny was last night, I was testing out this little combination thing. Apparently, I used less oil because it didn't catch on fire last night. So I'm trying to, like, test this in my house. And Angie's like, Holly, that smells good. But the difference between me and Angie is I grew up with an Irish Catholic family. So when I started smelling frankincense in my house, it reminded me of my grandparents' funerals. And that's where my mind went. And we're trying to set up the Christmas tree. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really want my mind being there right now. So I blew the candle out. It's amazing how powerful smell is to our memory. I remember I spent about five, maybe four or five weeks in Germany um, back when I was younger, uh, kind of a foreign exchange student that my dad arranged through a business friend of his in Germany. And while I was there, you know, you get homesick. And I walked into a McDonald's and I could smell the vinegar of ketchup and the fry of French fries. And I felt like I was back in America just for a little bit. But then they made me pay for my ketchup. And I'm like, this is not American. <laughs> but the smells can be so powerful. And the gifts that we bring to a, to a baby, you know, now what do you get? You give them a lot of diapers. Um, you know, you give them a lot of powders, a lot of ointments, and all these different things. One of my favorite new gifts is, you know, you can actually safely suck the boogers out of your kid's nose. They have these little vacuum things and it doesn't come into your mouth but you can actually suck it. It's very effective and it works very well. Don't judge. Um, I know one of the interesting presents that we got, if you don't know the story of Carson, Carson only had one ultrasound and it was when he was like 10 weeks old. And they looked at him like 10, maybe 12. And they said, oh, you're having a girl. And we're like, hey, that's great. We never did another ultrasound the entire pregnancy. We had an old school doctor, and I was going to seminary as a youth pastor. Not a lot of money in the budget. I'm like, do you cost extra to get ultrasounds? No, the kid's doing just fine. The heartbeat sounds good. We're good. So we never did another one the entire pregnancy. And so my friends um, actually delivering our child, I officiated her wedding for free. She would not deliver my kid for free, which I was a little upset about. And she's delivering my child, and she goes, Kevin, your son's peeing all over me. I go, what do you mean my son? And then she said another phrase I will not repeat in church. And she says, you have a boy. I was like, what? I'm wearing a pink shirt. The doctor says, so she was assisting, but our doctor looked over the curtain and said, Kevin, I'm glad I didn't bet my house on this one. I said, you should see my pink house. 
and literally we had to repaint rooms and we had to like do things. And actually, I won't get into all the details, but it actually was interesting. Some of the mourning that Angie and I went through because we lost a daughter while gaining the most amazing son we could have ever asked for and a brother for Preston. That's absolutely amazing. I love my son greatly, but we lost a daughter. Does that make any sense? And so going through all that, like Angie was struggling, like we had this tutu, we had this pink outfit, and that wasn't going to make any sense. Well, I did a lot of ministry on the Ohio State campus at the time. He was born at Ohio State, so some guys were just like, I gave him my credit card, and I was like, guys, go get some, find some Ohio State, like, you know, boy stuff. So they run out, and I think if, do we have a picture? This was the only outfit that we could find. It says, poop on Michigan. So that's literally the only onesie on the entire Ohio State campus that you could possibly find. And he's wearing little Chuck Taylors because we were trying to make Angie. I love his like boxing gloves, but yeah, he was like scratching himself, you know, but it looks like he's ready to fight. And uh, so that's Carson like the day after that he was born. So, you know, the gifts that we bring are different than gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The, I, I mentioned with the boys up here, and well, Elle was up here too, um, that... It comes from a tree resin. What's so interesting about frankincense is that it actually appears in the Bible 17 times, almost always associated with the priesthood of Israel. It was used by priests and it was for priests. It was for them when they were appointed. They would be anointed and they would melt it down. They would have, um, and in fact, if you go to a Catholic funeral and you see when they take the smoke and they put it over a casket, they would anoint them with the smoke of frankincense over them um, when they were ordained into the priesthood. It was also used by them um, when they were doing their offerings, when they were doing grain offerings and different offerings. They would pour the frankincense in and it would, and it would burn and it would make that black smoke that we actually got a chance to see a little bit. And it represented the sacrifices and the prayers being lifted up on behalf of Israel that the priests were taking this role of the in-between. They were the middlemen of the Old Testament. The priests were the ones that had the responsibility of being between God and between God's people. In Leviticus 2, it says that it smelled good to God because they did it in obedience and thanksgiving to God. Not that God particularly maybe likes the smell of frankincense, but he likes what it represented. In Philippians chapter 4.18 Paul had this in mind when he refers to the offering that was given to him. He says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from uh, Ephroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He's making reference to the finances that were given to the ministry that were just the same as the Old Testament frankincense that was lifted up to God. Psalm 141, this messianic psalm that points to the coming Savior, says that we may pray and be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. So Already frankincense is being associated with the Messiah and his hands someday being lifted up as the middleman coming between man and God and coming in between us. And that's why Bible scholars agree that frankincense represents the priestliness of Jesus. If you're taking notes, it represents Jesus as our high priest. Now, some of you, you know, if you weren't raised in, the, in a Catholic context, you may not understand some of the symbolism that we're sharing because we don't see it maybe in other churches. But this idea that there's a, a priest that's an in-between 
is something that we see so true in the Old Testament. Now, I love the childhood that I was born into. I love the faith of my family. And I very carefully say that there's a piece of this that's very important for us. And what Christ has done is we no longer need to go to anybody to pray between us and God. But if we want to make a confession, the joy that we have is I have made confessions driving home in my car. I have made confessions um, walking through the woods. I have made confessions alone in my closet. I have made confessions um, sitting in the middle of church. That we have the high priest who now comes on our behalf and intercedes between us and God so that we can freely come and be with what uh, God intended us to be in our relationship with him. So as we talk about these two functions, that the priests made sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, and secondly, the priests prayed prayers on behalf of God's people, that the same thing is true for us. You know where the beginning of the Christmas story begins? Does anybody know where in the Bible the very beginning of the, the Christmas story begins? In Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 is the beginning of our Christmas story. The Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put uh, immunity between you, distance between you and the woman, between you and your offspring and hers. But he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That already in Genesis 3, that God had a plan that someday he would send his son and that he would be able to defeat the sin that was brought into the world in the very beginning. Now, admittedly, in our culture today, a lot of people don't want to talk with a word and say that we actually sin. Who's to tell me if I've sinned? If it feels good, do it. You know, what's good for me, what's true for me is true for me. One person said actually that sin is a very outdated term to trick children into being good. I mean, you got to sing a few Christmas songs to know that there is some truth to that, right? He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And we've taken it one step further. Now there's narcs in every single house that we put on shelves and they keep an eye just for, you know, Santa to keep an eye on everybody. But there is some truth to that, that that has been used, that even some of the truths of biblical context have been used in ways to control people through guilt and other actions. But I'm so glad that we have a high priest that will tell us that that's so much more. Because here's the challenge. We have to understand the reality of sin in our lives. Because there's a holiness of God that even though Christ has died on the cross and won the war, we still every single day fight the battle in our flesh versus the sinfulness of man. You see, when we understand the holiness of God, we no longer will take a casual approach to sin. Until we understand what it truly means that God is holy, we'll never realize the cost of our sin and the tragedy of what sin does to us. God is holy. Understand the holiness of God. If you want to really follow more on this, if you didn't hear it, grab the app, get on YouTube. Um, part two of Are You Ready for the Holidays? Um, we really dig into that question. By the way, part three was my friend Chad, who's back with us today. Chad, thank you for such a great message um, while we were gone and just for caring for the church as well. 
What does it mean that God is holy? Well, it means that God is separate. It means that God is different from us. It's not just a who, but it's a what. God is separate from us in every way. Our God is perfect in every way, that he is flawless, that he is pure, that there is no fault, there is no wrong, there is no stain on him. And almost by default, it's because it's who he is. There's a really bad movie on Netflix that I like that it's one of the Adam Sandler movies. When I say bad, it's just not a good movie. And it's when the guy um, invents the rules of baseball. And it's funny because they like pitch a ball to him and he swings and they go, you're out. No, 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 I get to do it again. And he swings again. Nope, I get to do it one more time. And it's like he's making up the rules as they go along and they make absolutely no sense. So if you really think about the rules of baseball don't make a lot of sense. And so it's a really funny way of seeing it, but he couldn't be wrong because he was coming up with it. In a sense, that's who God is. God's the one that created. And so in him is perfection because he is the one who set things up. It's according to his plan that we live within. So we need to understand that the holiness isn't just one of the attributes of God. Holiness is the perfection of all of God's attributes. It all comes in to his holiness. His power is holiness. His grace is holiness. His mercy is holiness. His glory is holy. It's his holiness. It's his otherness. It's his separated from usness. His purity that makes him worthy of our praise. Our God is holy and our challenge is, I don't know about you, but I'm not. I'm not holy. None of us are. Not a single one of us we see in Romans 3.23, for it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The good news is that isn't our final sentence. It's the state that we're born into. This is why God hates sin. Because everything he is not is what sin is. I had a friend tell me many years ago, sin is anything that destroys and if you see that truth play out in your lives, perhaps in the lives of others, perhaps in, in, in marriages around you, you see when sin comes into a situation, all it does is break down our life. It destroys whatever it comes in contact with. The high priest in the Old Testament, one time a year, would make this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement known as Yom Kippur. And the priest would sacrifice an innocent animal go into the tabernacle, go behind the curtain and make this sacrifice. This sprinkling of death as they would take the blood of the lamb, they would actually take it into a bucket and they would pour it over the seat of mercy. By the way, you're allowed to hear that and say, that's weird. It's okay. And by me saying that, I weird out every single buddy in the entire room. Because for those of you that weren't weirded out, you're weirded out that I called it weird. And for those of you that thought it was weird, you think it's weird. And that's okay. The whole idea of a lamb having to be sacrificed, the blood being put in a bucket, poured on a seat, to represent the covering of the sin, of, uh, over the sin of all mankind. As we look at this, we understand that God is working in this moment. It seems entirely unfair that an innocent little animal dying in our place. Who would come up with something like this? But here's what we have to understand. Because God is just and he's completely just, he must punish sin. But God is not only just, 
but God is also merciful. And here's the beauty of what God does. The sacrifice satisfies God's justness, and at the same time, it extends his mercy. As we look at Jesus Christ, who came in the innocence of the virgin birth and lived his life without sin and was put on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, we see the justness of God satisfied and at the exact same time, the mercy of God extended. That is God's holiness. What was a temporary covering in the Old Testament becomes the complete covering of the blood of Christ for all mankind. Hebrews chapter 10 verse uh, 10 tells us a little bit about our high priest. It says, for God's will was for us to be made holy. We're, we're not holy in and ourselves, but it's God's will for us. It's God's will for us to be holy. So how can we be made holy? By the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once and for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar, day after day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away the sin. It's only a temporary covering for sin, but our high priest, whose name is Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for the sins, good for all time. You see, that's the beauty of this Christmas story. That's what this Christmas story really comes down to. It's not a temporary covering, but the frankincense that was given was declaring that Jesus Christ was our high priest, that Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the justice of God and extends the mercy to all God's creation. This is our high priest who gave his life for us. He is not just a distant savior, though. He actually knows what it's like to be in relationship with us. He is our high priest. And the high priest, especially the Old Testament, were not the kind of person you would hang out with very often. They and themselves were separated by everybody else. But in Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness. For he faced all the same testings as we do, and he did not sin. Embrace this truth. This is the truth I don't want you to miss today. Embrace the truth that whatever you're going through, Jesus understands. He relates to your trials. He relates to your pain. He relates to your difficulties. If you feel stressed right now, Jesus can relate to you. If you feel overwhelmed, your high priest can understand you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was abandoned by his friends, he knows what it's like to be abandoned by friends. He said, my soul is overwhelmed in agony to the point of death. He understands what it's like to cry out and be hurting. If you face anxiety, Jesus understands. If you deal with crazy people in your family on Christmas, Jesus understands what it's like to have crazy people in the family. If you say, I don't have crazy people in your family, I will tell you every family has one. If it's not you, when Jesus said, I am the Messiah, think about how much Jesus understands. You see, if you're taking notes, God understands what you're going through at this very moment. That's our high priest. He's not someone that's so far off and separate that we cannot understand. He's a person that you can be in relationship with. 
Think about this. He was conceived out of wedlock to a teenage mom before 16 and pregnant was popular. And maybe she was even 13. He was raised in a small town where everybody probably wished about him calling him that bastard boy. Jesus lived perhaps in poverty. He would be criticized. He was ridiculed. He probably understand what it was like to be bullied. You know, Jesus, you never break the rules, you know? He understands what it's like to be tempted over and over and over again. He understands what it's like when Satan comes at you, when you are at your weakest. Jesus experienced the death of a close friend. He grieved the loss of a family member. He was accused of things he did not do. And yes, his friends betrayed him. Worst of all, on the cross, he understood what it was like to feel separate and separated from God when all the sins of all mankind came upon him. And he who had not sinned became sin for all of us, for my sins and for your sins. And he understood what that was like, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whatever you feel, he's felt. Whatever you're hurting with, he's hurt. Mark 16 tells us that after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. You see, here's what's so significant. is the frankincense reminds us that Jesus Christ is our high priest. There's a lot of different pieces to the Old Testament temple. One thing you will not find in the Old Testament temple is a seat. Now, I mentioned the mercy seat of God, and I realize that, but that's not a seat that you sit on. Trust me, they they would not like that. The priests never stopped doing their work. They were continually burning incense, continually lifting up prayer because they never sat, because they understand that you don't sit until the job is completed. When the job is completed, you can go take a seat at the end of the day. But the priests in the temple had no seats because their job was never over. So in Mark, when it says that Jesus went and he sat on the right hand of God the Father, he sat down. It was literally the original mic drop. It was him coming up and saying, it is finished. Everything that the priests were called and asked to do, it is finished. It is done. You used to need a mediator to go between you and God. You don't anymore. You can pray to him at any single time because he is there for you. Because he has done that for you. Hebrews 7 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. That is your high priest. He is interceding for you between you and God. When we pray, we have no right for our prayers to go before a holy God. We don't. We really truly don't. But through Jesus Christ who is sitting Because he completed the work of the priest. He intercedes on our behalf. The Holy Spirit that he's given us is alive in us. And he sits on the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God and the Word became flesh. Jesus Christ is the one who came. We're going to see that gold is our king. Myrrh, our suffering servant. Frankincense, our high priest. Hebrews 4 tells us how I think we should respond to this message. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and then we will receive mercy. 
You see, I think God wants you to come boldly before the throne this Christmas season. And what we will find is a high priest who is interceding on our behalf. Job yelled out, if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us back together with God. We know who that someone is. His name is Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to call upon his name, his name today. First Timothy said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. I'm going to close with this one last story if the worship team wants to come up. In 1936, when like, you know, the most amazing technology was the radio, that you could hear people speak from far distances. But one thing they really hadn't figured out yet was to have, to have a person like the King of England speak from London to all the people of America. In 1936, they were going to try and make this work for the very first time. King Edward VIII was going to speak to the good people of America, and they were pretty sure they had found a way that they could connect London to a radio station in New York City that could then um, send the message through technology all the way out to California. So in that moment... King Edward is walking up to the microphone, but in the studio in New York, just like we have wires going across our stage, someone was walking across the, the room and tripped on the wire and the wire broke in half. Literally moments before the king was gonna bring the address, someone broke the wire and they said, we don't know what to do. What can we do in this situation? A young person who understood this technology at the time pulled out his pocket knife, stripped the wires on both sides, grabbed them with his bare hands, and stood the entire time because he understood the current could travel through his flesh and that through his flesh, the radio waves could travel and that all over America, they could hear the word coming from the king about the impeding war that was to come. You see, that's the mediator that we have. Within his flesh, he reached his arms out. He says, I will stand between you and God. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. So I hope you hear this Christmas message. Maybe it's time for you to come directly to God. Maybe, I mean, you're here at church, so I know who I'm speaking to. But maybe you've come to church and you've just tried to sit and just figure out this relationship with God and religion has been distracting you on all God wants and that is for you to come and be in relationship with him. Jesus Christ has reached out his hands to be our great mediator. He's paid the cost. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that heaven's voice is transmitted through the Holy Spirit right now. That in each and every heart that we can just imagine and picture the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ who's able to sit on the right hand of God the Father 
reaching out to each and every one of us, making that connection that we in our sinful flesh would never deserve to make. Paul said that he is the image of the invisible God. Father, I pray that this monumental truth, that our hearts can just burst with a desire of being in relationship with you. God, how humbled and grateful we are at your sovereignty and using a group of priests from a pagan world called the Magi and bringing that truth forward for hundreds of years so at the right time, in the right place, it could be declared that Jesus Christ will be our King. He will be our suffering servant, the Lamb of God, and he will be our high priest. God, I pray this morning, Lord, that there are some that will hear this message and cry out to Jesus this morning. God, as we go into this closing songs and we just declare all that you've done, all that you've created, including wiping away the mistakes that we've made, God, allow us to bring this prayer to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Church, would you stand? As we go into this last time of uh, worship, I just encourage you to reach out to Jesus, come to him, and let him bring you to the throne room of God. God of creation, there at the start before the beginning of time. With no point of reference, you spoke through the dark and flushed out the wonders of light. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars are made to worship, so alive. I can see your heart in everything you made. Every burning star, a signal fire of rain. Creation sings your praises so alive, so alive. God of your promise, you don't speak in vain, no syllable empty your voice. you have spoken all nature and science will follow the sound of your voice and as you speak a hundred billion creatures catch your breath 
evolving in pursuit of what you said. If it all reveals your nature so alive, I can see your heart in everything you say. Every painted sky, the canvas of your words. The creation still obeys you so alive. So alive. So alive. stars were made to worship so alive if the mountains bow in reverence so alive if the oceans wore your greatness so alive for if everything exists to lift you high so alive if the wind goes where you send it, so alive. If the rocks cry out in silence, so alive. If the sum of all our praises still falls shy, then we'll sing again a hundred billion. You chased down my heart through all of my failure and pride. On a hill you created the light of the world, abandoned in darkness to die. And as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear Where you lost your life so I could find it here If you left the grave behind you so alive I can see your heart and everything you've done Every part is mine, a work of art called the love. If you gladly chose surrender, so will I. I can see your heart a billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to if you gave your life to love, then so am I. Like 
you would again a hundred billion times but what measure could amount to your desire you're the one who never leaves the one behind amen church have a great week 